Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Coach's Corner. I'm Coach Andrew Poretz from Ingenuity Coaching. I help people to discover and fulfill their passions and greatness. My mission is to inspire and challenge you to dream big dreams and with my coaching. Help you to manifest those dreams into reality. You can visit my website at myfuturecoach.com and follow me on Twitter at Coach Andrew. If you're listening live and you have a question, the phone number here is 646-929-2893. Again, that's 646-929-2893. You'll be able to listen to the show on the phone, and if you press the number 1, I will know you have a question. There's also a live chat room right on the show page where you can feel free to join in and ask questions. Now, this is my first Coach's Corner in just about a year. I've come out of my seeming temporary retirement to interview a really cool guy I met last year, Stephen J. Griffel. Now, Stephen J. Griffel has a distinguished career as an editor, publisher, and writer in the educational publishing field, and he's authored several books in his acclaimed David Grossman series, including his most recent book, Grandview, which I recently had the pleasure of reading on my uh, Kindle app on my phone. Now, you can find out more about Stephen at uh, uh, Amazon, uh, but I'd like to know, Stephen, are you on the phone with me right now? I am here, Andrew. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Andrew. Great to have you here on my show. Thank you. I'm proud to be here. As you should be. So, uh, <laughs> so where are you calling in from right now? Well, at the moment, I live in Bayside, Queens, um, just uh, in the shadow of the Throgs Neck Bridge. Very nice. Well, uh, I grew up in Bayside, Queens, in the shadow of, uh, not quite in the shadow of the Throgs Neck Bridge, um, but I grew up in the, uh, in the Bay Terrace area, went to public school, uh, PS 169, and uh, Bell Boulevard was my boulevard. I know it well. My children both went to that school, PS-169. But uh, I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to know that you're really a Bronx boy at heart. I am a Bronx boy. I'm, um, I'm actually a, a second-generation Jew. My ancestors came from, from Poland, from Russia, Russia from Galicia. Uh, perhaps some came from somewhere beyond the pale. I don't know for sure. <laughs> Uh, or somewhere all, beyond the sea. <laughs> these are all exotic places, uh, and I have never visited them and uh, likely never will. Oh, well, you know, we, we apparently have a lot in common. Uh, my grandparents came from, they called it Russia, Poland. Yes. And today it's called Lithuania. So that's, uh, that's like my, my, uh, my, my part of the world. Indeed, so, yes. So, Stephen, I, I, you are uh, an unusual. I, I have you listed as a ebook author um, because your books are basically not the kind of books that you would go into the Barnes and Noble if they still have such a thing and pick up a, a nice copy. But you actually will buy your book and download it. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Um, you know, quite frankly, um, when I first was published, 
um, that was about half a dozen years ago. Mm-hmm. I was considered something of a digital pioneer, mm. um, although ebooks had been around for the better part of you know twenty or thirty years. In most cases, writers had published uh, through the traditional paper-bound uh, paradigm, and once in a while, an ebook would have been released. But in my case, I was published by a publisher who maintains a digital rights-only platform, and that was highly unusual. In fact, when I was first published, um, there was no Kindle for Macintosh. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, was very, it was not easy to get the book. There were no tablets. There were no smartphones. And very few people were aware of what a digital book was. So it was a, um, a, a tough road for me to uh, beat the pavement and educate people and try to convince them to read digi- uh, digital books. And, and did you ever uh, you know, consider uh, uh, trying another means or expanding that outside of that digital, or has that always been the, the plan? Oh, it absolutely was not always the plan. In fact, it, uh, it wasn't even imagined. Uh, I grew up in the traditional publishing world. I, I worked, actually, and continue to work in publishing. I've been doing that for nearly 42 years and had always dreamt of writing and publishing the great American novel the way that uh, people have been dreaming about that mm. for the last you know, 150 years with my uh, beautifully bound books uh, in the uh, large uh, windows of big, beautiful bookstores. It just didn't happen that way for me. Uh, and I published many things over the course of the years, stories, poetry, uh, magazine articles, books for children, but I had never published the big novel. It mm. just happened when I finally found a publisher who loved my work. He was on a digital rights only. And that was, that was something that really was difficult for you know, me to get used to. But I have come um, not only to um, endorse it, I, I've really come to uh, I- embrace that phenomenon. I, I really do love uh, digital books mm. and uh, the whole phenomenon at this point. Yeah, I want to get a little clarity here. So you say digital rights only. So where are the other rights? Well, in other words, um, my publisher does not have the means or the interest even in publishing a paper-bound book. It would be suicide for most of the new indie publishers to go in that direction. There's just no profit to be made. Now, however, if the book were to get hot enough, uh, my publisher would make inquiries, and quite frankly, he already has. Uh, The first book, 40 years later, has done really well. It has sold over 50,000 copies. Wow. And that, that in itself was enough buzz for him to pick up the phone and talk to publishers. And those conversations are actually ongoing to some degree. It hasn't happened yet. It certainly may. In the very beginning, I really was 
rooting, dare I say, praying that it would happen. Uh-huh. But I've let that go. I'm, I'm okay. really comfortable with the uh, being only on a digital platform. I, right. I mean, I lose some readers, as you can sure. imagine. That there are people who simply refuse to read a book in a digital format. But I gain so many. Mm. Um, all around the world, too. I mean, that's the thing. Um, so many people have computers or tablets or cell phones, and I get messages on Facebook and through email uh, from readers all around the world, and it's incredibly, incredibly thrilling for me. What is it like the most unusual kind of contact you've gotten from somebody who has found your book? Um, I think I got uh, uh, so. Uh, I think it's the island of Pago Pago. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a, uh, a truck stop away between New Zealand and uh, and Australia. I'm not sure, but my publisher is able to track all of the sales, and although the great majority of, of sales have been in the United States. Uh, we have sold all around the world. In fact, several years ago, my publisher sent me a note. Actually, he called me to tell me this. He mm-hmm. said, congratulations, Stephen. Your books have now been sold on six continents. And I was, I was amazed. I was thrilled. Mm. I, I danced a little jig. I yelled out to my wife, who was in the next room. I said, honey... Did you know my books were selling on six continents? And she yelled back, aren't there seven? (laughs) (laughs) Tough critic. (laughs) And great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's always always, uh, that little bit more, right? (laughs) We keep keep the bar raised very high around here. Yeah. So I, I want to get back a little bit to uh, you know your your background like your story. How did you uh, in, you, you uh, spent a lot of time in the in a different end of publishing, uh, not in in the in the novel form. And how how did you go from there to here? Or was that something you always were working on? Huh. Well, a uh, good question. Um... I'm wondering if I should back up into some earlier even inspiration, or do you want me Absolutely. to go? Absolutely. No, no. Yeah. I love, we love inspiration here on Coach's Corner. Okay, then I've, I've got uh, I've got some of my some of my own here. Um, I guess the best way to describe my history is um, I was a good student, not a great student. I was like I was uh, a good ball player, not a great ball player. In fact, there wasn't anything that particularly distinguished me. Mm. But growing up, I was always good at telling jokes and stories. And it seemed, to, because I was so good at this talking, this storytelling, it seemed to give me a little niche, a little place in the world that set me apart as something a, a little bit special. Anyway, um, when I was still a pretty young young boy, I think I was about 13 years old, and it was mm-hmm. the summer before high school. Right. And I had been accepted into the scholarship program at Dewitt Clinton High School in the Bronx in New York City. And uh, that high school had a very, and the scholarship class, had a very rigorous English program. 
and they were preparing me ahead of time to be introduced to two classes of English a day, one class in composition, one class in literature. And as part of this preparation, they gave me a reading list for this summer before I entered high school. And I don't remember the exact number of the, the books. Maybe there were like ten books, and I was required to choose seven or eight of them. And the list included classic heavyweights like Jack London, mm-hmm. Robert Louis Stevenson, Rudyard Kipling, uh, Conan Doyle, that kind of stuff. Um, looking at it, such a list now, it's not much of a uh, gender-balanced or multicultural list. But even so, it was a great list. And I, when I first got the list, quite frankly, I was crushed. I didn't want to read these books. I just wanted to have a summification. Mm, In fact, okay. I, think I, I think I started to cry. <laughs> Because I was imagining everyone else having fun during the summer, and I was going to be stuck inside uh, reading the books. But I did read them. And that summer that I thought would be seriously damaged, possibly ruined by having to read so many books, that summer and reading those books were a turning point in my life. Um, When I read them, and they were all of them great books, and I read them one after the other, they gave me a kind of a, I don't know, a kind of a, a critical mass of motivation to read more. And it, it set for me, it established for me a, a habit of reading and reading great literature. And not long after that, it occurred to me, because I was enjoying the experience so much, that I might be a writer. Maybe okay. even a great one. Hey, we, we, we dream big. Sure, why not? We, we dream big. And so I started to uh, fuss around and uh, write my stories and write my, my poetry. And, you know, a couple of years passed and I went to college. And I was uh, a freshman at 16 and I already knew exactly what I wanted to do. I chose, Queens, I chose Queens College because at the time it was the best school in the city university system and also because they were renowned for the English department, which was so varied, Andrew, it actually had an entire separate department for creative writing and its own degree. Well, by, so well, it, by the way, what years were you at Queens College? Uh, 1969 was my uh, freshman year, and I graduated four years later in 73. So, were you there when Jerry Seinfeld was there? Um, I don't remember Jerry. (laughs) I do remember that uh, not long before me, there was much talk of Paul Simon. Paul Simon went there? I did not know yes. that. Yes, Paul, Paul Simon was at Queens College, and his friend Art Garfunkel was at Columbia, mm-hmm. and uh, they were. Uh, uh, Paul was at Queens College a couple years before I was there. I know I a very a famous short, um, rotund uh, male porno star went there <laughs> by the name of Ron Jeremy. I know Ron Jeremy. Oh, I know. There. Ron Jeremy's still around. Maybe I shouldn't <laughs> admit that so readily. I know Ron Jeremy. <laughs> Oops. Oh. <laughs> Oops. Well, now we know. 
<laughs> anyway, Only here so in Coach's I, Corner do we find this out. <laughs> so I declared my major. At 16, yeah. I said, I'm going to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And I took my degree in creative writing. And I prepared myself for a career. Uh, as soon as I finished Queens College, I then entered uh, Fordham University, and I took a master's degree in American literature. I wasn't a scholar. I mean, I really did not care even very much about scholarship per se, mm-hmm. but I was still very young, even in graduate schools, barely out of my teens. Maybe I just turned 20, and I just didn't feel like I was ready to write big books yet. So it occurred to me that the next best thing would be to stay in school a while longer and read the great books by other great American writers and uh, try to learn a little bit. And you, do you remember any of the, any of the things you read that, that stuck with you, made an influence on you? Oh, yeah. Um, I was um, very inf- influenced by um, Bernard Malamud. Mm-hmm. I was, uh, I think, actually, the four biggest influences, not necessarily my favorite books, but the four biggest influences were William Faulkner. Mm. Uh, Faulkner taught me how to really appreciate my past and my culture. Um, uh, Franz Kafka, and Kafka taught me how to really think about my dreams mm. and to see the story content of my dreams and the possibilities of story from my dreams. Um, Did he also teach was, you uh, to think about your nightmares? You, you, well, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're pretty dire dreams for sure. <laughs> uh, and then there were two others. There was uh, a writer named Lawrence Durrell, and he's very famous for having created this amazing masterpiece called the Alexandria Quartet. It actually is a, a quartet, a tetralogy, four books. Ah, and okay. what he does with perspective in that novel, telling the same story from four different perspectives, um, really shook me to my core. Mm. And I was never the same after reading Lawrence Durrell's work. And there was a French writer named Alain Robgrier. And Robgrier, a little bit like Durrell, was famous for really doing experimental work with the narrative form. I and mean, he would fracture it, he would almost atomize it into impressions, pull it all together again. I was incredibly interested, not only in. Uh, usual kind of literal or sequential narrative, mm-hmm. but I was really interested in the, the protean qualities of the novel. I mean, it was, it was an amazing form. You could ask it to do anything. It could bend in any direction, like Gumby. <laughs> um, and it was just an, an amazing vehicle. And so for years, I studied the, the architecture, or the architectural possibilities of novel writing. Um, eventually, I kind of left all that, <laughs> right? And and that was sort of uh, stuff from my 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 youth in my graduate school days. But in fact, I'm I'm not a very big uh, experimenter in my 
in my own fiction, with a few exceptions. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, um, all of my novels, in fact, uh, as you know, they are known collectively as the David Grossman series. Mm-hmm. And what explains that is that all three of the novels, and those being Grandview, 40 Years Later, and The Deadline, each of those novels share a first-person narrator mm-hmm. and, okay, named David Grossman. Right. Um, but all of those novels pretty much move along in a traditional sequential narrative way. The very fir- uh, first book that was published, though, 40 years later, I took some unusual chances. Um, and I didn't start out thinking I'm going to take some unusual chances. It was just very organic. It just happened that way. Mm-hmm. And what happened in 40 years later is that much of the book is actually told via the exchange of emails. Really? Okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, and that in itself is not all that um, new because no- novels have been written you know, for many years, uh, you know, through, uh, you, know, you know, letter writing. Right, um, sure. It, in fact, Dracula is, is such a novel uh, as that. Um, mm-hmm. So, but, but writing them through emails was, was very modern and it caught a lot of people's attention. And that was, that was a fun thing to do. But I'm, but I'm still pretty much of a, of a traditionalist. Um, with my own narrative form, and I guess what still sets me apart is the uh, the digital thing. Sure. Although at this point it's become pretty common. Right. Uh, you know, I don't get asked a whole lot of questions anymore. You know, what's what's um, you know what's a digital book? What's an ebook? You know, when I first started, I was asked to speak. I'm, I don't really recollect how it came about. But I was asked to speak at the famous New York uh, Public Library branch at Soho, which is famous for its reading series. I was not part of their formal reading series, but somehow Mm -hmm. they had heard of me and my story and my book, which was 40 years later, and they invited me to speak. Um, It appears that it went extremely well, because about three days later, I got an email and the subject of the email uh, line was Senior Librarian of New York City. Mm. So I double-click, I read, I think I'm being punked because it's such, uh, you know, it's such uh, an unusual thing. And what it was is the Senior Librarian of New York City from the 42nd Street Library had heard of my presentation from the head librarian of the Soho branch and invited me to reprise, as she put it, reprise my presentation at 42nd Street. So I went from complete anonymity to being a little bit well-known wow. in, in about 72 hours. Well, that doesn't sound like such a bad thing. No, it was wonderful. And uh, quite frankly, after that, I had only to present the uh, information about my experience at 42nd Street and um, 
I was getting invitations to speak at all kinds of places, other kinds of libraries and community centers and uh, et cetera. Right. Now you, you're saying that you know that people are now pretty you know not uh, surprised by ebooks and all this technology, but you know a lot of people it's it's still a fairly new thing. Oh, absolutely! In fact, I was turned down the uh, the other day. I reached out to a friend who is a member of the Jewish organization of Hadassah. Mm-hmm. And I knew that she was a member of this chapter's book club. And so I asked her if she would inquire among her sisterhood if they uh, might be interested in reading one of my books. And if they seemed to be very interested until they found out that it was a digital book. This particular sisterhood is very old. Right. My friend said, Stephen, don't take it personally, but they, they're like 70 years old on average. And for most of them, they simply have never yet had their first experience reading a digital book. And so they turned me down. I would actually have loved to have just heard the conversation about that. <laughs> what? Why are you kidding me? It, with a, with a not, you can't even pick it up. You can't turn the page. I'm, I'm just imagining this whole conversation would have been very interesting. Yeah, well, all I did is utter one big fat, oi. Oi. <laughs> yeah, but, it, you know, here we go. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's, in the, it's the new order. It's not the, not the old order. We're sort of in that in-between, in-between place. Now, I wanted to ask you, uh, just not that you have anything at all to do with this, but, you know, there's a lot going on in this world of the e-books. There's this big um, uh, uh, agita going on with... Um, with uh, Amazon and the publishing company like Hachette. Uh, do you have any insight into that stuff? I Actually, it's a good question, um, and I do. Uh, and the reason I do is that my publisher is closely connected with Amazon. Okay. Um, and so uh, we often talk about, you know, uh, what's going on. Um I, I think I should probably give a little background for our sure. listeners who, who you know, just are not really prepared to understand, you know, you know, how there came to be a suit between the publishers uh, and Amazon. Right. Um, well, you know, to begin with, as I alluded to earlier, uh, e-books themselves are not a new thing. They've been mm-hmm. around for better part of like 30 years. But quite frankly, the early ones were mostly clumsy PDFs. They were flat. They were static. They offered virtually no technological interaction with the reader. Um, What made them special for their day was that they could be emailed directly to a person, and that person Mm -hmm. would read on their computer. Right. Um, But that was the good news and the bad news. You you had to read a PDF on a computer. And in the early days, 20, 30 years ago. This was largely before the, uh, the big boom, even with laptops. So when I say computer, um, the audience should be picturing just a big, fat-ass desktop <laughs> computer. Sure. And so that's how you read, you read the, uh, the e-books. Um, the only other choice to read a book, if it were published only in, it, uh, in that kind of format, would in fact be to print 
the book out. You could print out from most of the PDFs. But, of course, you would have been exhausting about nine expensive cartridges of printer ink, mm-hmm. which would have defeated the purpose of buying the less expensive ebook in the first place. Sure. Anyway, you know, um, ebooks. Um, nobody was buying them. They weren't a booming business. There was like a no business um, at all. Uh, publishers produced, you know, very uh, few of them uh, mm-hmm. for the simple reason there was no market for them. Um, and in fact, in those days, there was no Amazon. Amazon wasn't even formed until 1994. It's pretty recently, actually. Mm, okay. And in those early days, Amazon was not selling a whole lot of ebooks either. They barely existed. Like I said, no market for them. But how shall I put this? Um, Amazon was smart. Amazon was Prometheus smart, seeing the writing on the wall smart. Right. They foresaw how the digital age would affect publishers. And they helped to create to create a market for digital books. Okay? They were the forerunner. And I'm referring when I say this to all the R and D that went into developing the first successful digital reader, the Kindle. Because the Kindle was an absolute game changer. This mm. became this just uh, was the preview to the future of reading. Um, and because the Kindle was interactive to a degree, it had instant downloads, suddenly ebooks went from being a clumsy PDF, they became a kind of practical alternative to the traditional book. And that was a really, really, uh, you know, big thing, an absolute right. game changer. Now, the thing is, the publishing company or publishing companies, they could have invented this. They, they might have had the foresight, but they didn't. And you have to mm-hmm. keep that in mind. Yes. Amazon invented this, in effect, for the publishing companies. Amazon spent millions of its own R&D dollars to produce the Kindle, okay, which mm-hmm. went a long way to creating the market. Well, the thing is, as most of us know, you know, when the Kindle finally, uh, you know, got its sea legs, it, some people would say it began a, a tragic cycle. You know, okay. e-book, e-books were coming exponentially more popular, and as that was happening, you know, paper-bound sales were uh, circling, uh, circling the drain. Um, that's a little bit of, an, uh, of, of a hyperbolic statement. Yes. But a- as of about three years ago, e-books have been outselling paperbacks and hard. And the divide between the two is fairly substantial at this point. And as you probably know, you know, as the years went by, all the big bookstore chains went out of business. Mm-hmm. No more Borders, no more all these other stores, and only Barnes & Noble remains. Right. And uh, Barnes & Noble is reputed to be tottering uh, mm-hmm. into uh, bankruptcy. Anyway, so now, now we're, with that, we're kind of a little bit better able to understand uh, the, 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 the battle between Amazon and Hachette. When I first published, Amazon was, I don't know how else to say it, they were kind of greedy bastards because they could be. They were, they were the only right. game in town. And f- 
for every book that Amazon sold, and this wasn't just for me, it was for all of their books, Amazon, all of their digital books anyway, Amazon took 70% and left the rest for the publisher and the writer to divide, however they their contract stipulated. Well, eventually, you know, publishers were getting really, really pissed at this. How else sure. to put it? Amazon was taking a huge bite of their pie. Well, it eventually came to pass that Apple decided that they were going to get into the market. And I think it was back in 2010, really early in the year, possibly even in January, Apple launched the first iPad, which mm-hmm. was the first, the first tablet. At the same time, what people, some people forget, it launched its iBooks. And iBooks was meant to be a big head-to-head competitor with Amazon. And so a lot of publishers said, well, screw 70% with Amazon. Let's see if we can work out a deal with Apple. Now, Mm -hmm. it's one thing when you work out a deal, and there's another thing if you conspire to fix prices. Right. And this this is the crux of the argument. It appears that any number of publishers in their battle to oppose Amazon um, colluded with each other to fix Mm -hmm. prices through the venue of iBooks. Um, That's what this suit is all about. The fact that it's Hachette is only because of all the companies that have been named. Hachette is the first up. In terms of a court suit. Well, I'm really speaking of the business of Amazon now doing this thing where they're they're holding up books from Hachette authors. They're saying no, we're, we're they're out of stock. They won't be in for weeks, and discouraging uh, consumers from buying those books because there's a because of this disagreement. That's really yeah, what I'm they're, asking they're about. Playing, they're playing absolute, you know, hardball. Yeah. You know, they point fingers at Hachette saying that they did illegal things against Amazon. So Amazon's, quite frankly, you know, it's, it appears that they're spitting in their face a little bit. And it will all be resolved, I suppose, in the court of law. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so I, I want to get to talking about um, a couple of things, really. Uh, yeah, we're talking about some of your your influences, but another influence I wanted to ask you about is: uh, Does uh, did being uh, it, you're growing like growing up in the Bronx is, the, is does, does being a Bronx boy had that have any influence on you as a writer? Oh yeah, I mean I am um, absolutely a uh, a Bronx boy. My uh, my story is not exactly a you know a Horatio Horatio Alger story, mm-hmm. but uh, but my origins are uh, pretty humble and common. Um, I was born in the South Bronx, actually on uh, Southern Boulevard, in a small apartment building. I suppose you would call it a, a, a tenement nowadays. Right. Um, and when I was about five years old, we moved. Um, the neighborhood had begun to change which I'm sure you will recognize as, uh, as a euphemism, yes. uh, for uh, there had been an influx of people of color. Yes. So um, in, in some cases, you know, there was white flight, 
and mm-hmm. people went to the suburbs. In the case of the Bronx, you went from the South Bronx to the North or the West Bronx, or you moved to Queens. Um, we actually moved to a small street that intersected the Grand Concourse, a little north of Kingsbridge Road, and this was my life. Yeah. This was my this was my neighborhood, <laughs> and it um, it was as as motivating and dramatic a setting to me as the uh, as the uh, little southern town was to Harper Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know this was this was my uh, you know domain. My particular neighborhood was uh, just a few blocks away from uh, uh, you know the Edgar Allan Poe Cottage. Oh yeah, I've passed that on my on the bike uh, yeah, last just, uh, year. Yeah, on the concourse. In yeah. fact, my public school, PS forty six, was known as the Edgar Allan Post School. Mm. Uh, but I, I love the Bronx. I really did. Um, I I love the Bronx Zoo. I love the botanical gardens. Mm-hmm. I love going to Yankee Stadium with my with my father. Uh, I went to Hebrew school in the Bronx. I was bar mitzvah in the Bronx. I went to Dewey Clinton High School, um, but as I told you, I didn't go to college there. Um, my right. father had a factory job, and it was planning to move to Queens. So I applied to and got into Queens College, and um, and that experience changed my life as well. What did your father do in the, in the factory? My father was um, a polisher. He worked uh, facing a, uh, a steel lathe. And he would have uh, tubes of gold, and the, you would slice the, these tubes of gold into you know different you know thicknesses, and he would grind the insides of that pipe, which was the cross section of a pipe. It's rough inside, mm-hmm. and he would grind it down, and he would start making a band out of it. He would apply different finishes, different designs. That was his. His specialty. One of my, you know, I always had this love of words. One of my first big words I learned from my father, who was a polisher, but mm-hmm. he loved to call himself a lapidary. A lapidary. That's great. So somebody who works with the, you know, jewels, gemstones. So yeah. Growing up, my father would uh, give me a little elbow in the side, a little wink. He'd say to people, "I'm a lapidary." Wow. Now. Uh, by uh, sheer coincidence, no doubt, uh, David Grossman's father had the same job as your father. Yeah, you see, I don't know how that happened. I don't know how that happened. Now, because uh, one of the things you said earlier in this conversation, I because I've been thinking, is Stephen J. Griffo and David Grossman one and the same? After reading this book, and one of the things you said earlier in this conversation said, let me think, there's no way that that could be you, because you said you were good in baseball. <laughs> I, I'm listening very closely here, young man. <laughs> and uh, David Grossman was a self-described uh, spaz who uh, could not uh, deal with a ball uh, whatsoever. So, uh, so that... <laughs> That's where the similarity ends, folks. Um, so well, I'm. Go. <laughs> I don't well, know if you know, remember I these actually... old commercials for the guy, uh, um, the guy from uh, uh, what's that science, science fiction serial, Buster Crab. Um, oh, sure. The guy, that actor, and he did these t- T-shirt commercials, 
in the early 70s for this T-shirt that would let you look really fit. <laughs> and it I looks like I an ordinary cover, a T-shirt, now. folks, but that's where, the similarity, he was saying, that's where the similarity ends. It's always <laughs> stuck in my head. Um, so, okay, so you and David Grossman, you clearly have, I mean, you, you know, your dad's at the same job, but you were good in baseball. So I want to hear about, like, where did this character come from? Who is this kid? Or, or man, David Grossman is certainly my uh, David Grossman is certainly my my fictional alter ego. Okay, um, uh, I I think I, I pretty much have to own up to that. Okay, uh, we we share uh, many points of biography and personality, mm-hmm. but we absolutely are not the same. Okay, um, in fact. I use David to explore some roads that I am not likely to take. Right. Okay. He shows uh, more daring than I do. Sometimes he makes uh, dangerous choices. But by exploring his motivations and developing the consequences of his his actions Mm -hmm. and relationships, I learn a great deal about myself. So David Grossman is a, is a parallel world for me. Mm. Now, sometimes I do admit I, I, I cut it really close to reality. My sister laughs when I say, no, we're, no, we're not the same. And she points to one of the novels. She'll say, David's parents are named Bill and Esther. Your parents were named Bill and Esther. <laughs> you Oops. couldn't even change the name? <laughs> but... But, you know, um, but we are different. And case in point, uh, my sister. Now, you just read Grandview. Yes. And I, um, so you will certainly remember that David Grossman is an only child. Mm-hmm. There is no sister. Now, what most people don't uh, know about you know, my career, even those people who have you know, read all my books, is that Grandview, which is the most uh, recently published book was actually the first one of this series that was written. And uh. it, was, it was written about 20 or 25 years ago. And the reason why it wasn't published was very simple. I couldn't find a publisher. Yes. I was turned down by, oh, I don't know, let me see, one, two, three, four, seventy. You know, different, <laughs> different publishers or so. Uh-huh. And interestingly, most of them, at least the ones that deign to give me uh, an actual response for their decision, mm-hmm. said the same thing to me. And what they said is the market is absolutely glutted with first-person coming-of-age novels. Mm. I had not even thought about this, but apparently almost every writer his or her first novel is a first-person coming-of-age novel. And so it was a really hard sell. And furthermore, in, in my case, the protagonists of Grandview are fairly young teenagers, right around right. 14 years old, mm-hmm. and for the most part dominated by boy teenagers. Right. And so the publishers were telling me, they'd say, Mr. Griffel, point in fact is... Uh, Women 
tend to buy more books, much more books than uh, many more books than men do. They buy about uh, over 70% of the trade fiction, and they probably will not want to read about uh, 14-year-old boys. And so everyone passed on Grandview. And it wasn't until 20 years later where a publisher that I had sent 40 years later to absolutely fell in love with it and published it. About a year or two later, I had written um, a book called The Deadline, and my publisher loved that a book, too. Those books also feature David Grossman, mm-hmm. but they feature David Grossman as not only grown, but a middle-aged guy in his 50s or 60s. Right. So to answer your question, David yeah. and I are kind of welded at the hip. <laughs> okay. But yet we've never seen you two at the same time. (laughs) And you never will. Never will. Now, I have to ask you, because one of the things that, um, you know, this book, for anybody listening, is, you know, takes place in uh, the Catskills, summer cottages, uh, and it's a a lot like camp, basically. It's like the camp within the the cottages. I definitely uh, harken back to one of my favorite books from childhood, uh, The City Boy. Uh, Was that an influence on you at all? No, The City Boy Boy was uh, not an an influence. But, you know, the Grandview, the action of Grandview takes place during one particular summer, right around the year 1960 or so. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit later, maybe the early, I forget, the early 60s perhaps. Now, in fact, I spent 10 years in living in the Catskills, or mm-hmm. what, is, what is called uh, among my tribes, men and women, the Jewish Catskills, because it's very different from the, the other Catskills. It has it, it's, its, own, its own coloration right. and history and culture for sure. But... Those events of those ten summers spent up there absolutely influenced my my personality, my absolute uh, life. In fact, I, I think it's fair to say that I was born and raised in the Bronx, but the Catskills is where I grew up. Um, the Catskills. I mean, this is where this is where I spent my wonder years. You know, all of those formative summers, mm-hmm. from ages eight to seventeen. And you were there you know, at the same time as that. You know, the movie uh, uh, Dirty Dancing takes place. Uh, yeah, that's um, that's an interesting uh, comparison. Uh, there's uh, someone, um, the screenwriter. Uh, who wrote the movie A Walk on the Moon. Uh, mm-hmm. In one of her interviews, she goes on at uh, some considerable length to, um, to kind of, you know, describe th- that, that particular uh, film because anyone who is Jewish who watched that film knows that it takes place in a Jewish resort with Jewish waiters and Jewish yes. owners, etc. But the movie... Studiously, n- never mentions the word Jew. Right. Um, and that was, you can be absolutely sure that that was quite intentional. They were going for a very, um, you know, mainstream audience. Yeah. 
and um, you know the 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 Jew stories, you know, simply wasn't going to play. But they, they remember the other movie, uh, The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, which by Mordecai Rickler. Yeah. Yes, yes, I, I, I it's, uh, yes, uh, Richard Dreyfuss played that role. Richard Dreyfuss, but that was his start. That was his breakout vehicle. Yes, yes. That um, also, uh, I had seen that and, and loved it, but also not a big motivating factor for me. Um, for me, it was really that all of those kind of landmark events in my life I always associated with my summers in the Catskills. Mm. I mean, that's where I learned to swim. That's where I, I, I learned to catch a ball. That's where I kissed a girl for the very first time. Mm. Um, all those big firsts were growing up in the Catskills. And so it was not surprising for me that one day, I, uh, when I was going to write my first book, I said it in the Jewish Catskills. Now, because I, I needed to have a strong narrative, it just wasn't a, a string of pearls stretching across ten years. Right. I took those stories that were most meaningful to me and shaped them as organically as I could into some subplots that all worked together during the course of one single summer, and that is the you know the uh, the narrative uh, shape of Grandview. So, so what stories? Like, could you give me a couple of stories that were pretty much the same story in real life that I would have read in Grandview? Or characters, even. Um, okay, I'll uh, okay, I'll give you one, and and I'll show you how it's similar and how it's different. Sure. Um, the men of Grandview yes. did have a a men's softball team, mm-hmm. and during one particular summer, they were terrific. Yeah. Every Sunday they would play a team from a different bungalow colony, and sometimes even from the major hotels. And they were they were absolutely terrific, and they had I think an absolute perfect season one summer. Right. And it was it was very exciting. In my novel, I start with that premise. Yes. And as you know, I don't want to give too much away. I take it to almost superhuman length. Right. By creating an adversary. That was uh, really extraordinary. Now, that adversary, by the way, um, has his parallel in real life. I'm not sure that you're aware of yeah, that. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. The, 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 what do you call him, the king? Well, I, yes, yes. In real life, the, um, there was a man named Eddie Fainer. Yes, yes. And he was famous for uh, being the headliner of a softball troupe mm-hmm. called The King and His Court. Yes, I, think, I remember um, that. He was just the greatest pitcher who ever lived, and he only played with, uh, I think, one infielder, uh, maybe a a shortstop, a first baseman, a catcher, and maybe one outfielder. So that's all they played with, with four four other players. Uh, So there were like five players on the team, and they were unbeatable because Eddie Fainer was an absolute um, Paul Bunyan magician with the softball. And so I created a character based on Eddie Fainer, and I had that character oppose my father. 
and all of the other fathers of Grandview into the ultimate softball. No, I, I, that was that was great stuff. And and I and I'm going. This kind of this, isn't it that guy? But I, I couldn't quite remember the name. And I'm going. I know that's not the right name, but it sounds like that guy that I used to. I remember him coming on uh, like a, I don't know if it was Johnny Carson or some show of that nature, and then you know showing the pitches, and it was and nobody even I think he he even played some demonstrations against major league players who couldn't hit him either. Oh yeah, he was famous for striking out Mays and McCovey and yeah. and all of those uh, Hall of Fame greats. Now he was extraordinary. He could he could pitch blindfolded behind his back between his legs. He could stand in center field and throw a windmill fastball to home plate and throw it for a strike time after time after time. Amazing. Yeah, it's just uh, uh, amazing. So those there were many, many uh, Grandview stories. I'll and what about the uh, the uh, the female characters? Because like, there was this uh, uh, several uh, uh, attractive. I've imagined them in my mind. These attractive young women, and the one that you have the big crush on. Or I mean, not you, David. <laughs> excuse me, David has yes, the big crush thank on. Thank you very much. That I get in enough trouble. Yes. Um, in fact, you know, I said that I uh, spent ten summers in the Catskills. Yes. Um, eight of them were spent at a bungalow colony called Grandview. What a surprise there. But the last two years were spent at a bungalow colony in Mountaindale, New York, a different area of the Catskills, mm-hmm. and it had the unusual name of Dr. Locker's Bungalow Colony. And it was during my two summers there that I had an enormous crush on a beautiful teenage girl named Andrea Cohen. Hmm. Um, and uh, she's uh, transformed into Andrea Cooper <laughs> <laughs> uh, in, <laughs> in, the, in this novel. But this did not take place. I mean, in the, in the book, of course, it all takes place in Grandview. But this is yet another example of me importing a motivation from outside of Grandview, strictly speaking, and putting it into that one summer of events. Okay. By the way, is uh, Andrea Cohn uh, aware of this character? Have you ever contacted her? Um, I once ran into her. uh, It had been, you know, 35 years, maybe close to 40 years Mm -hmm. after having seen her. And it was at a time, this was before any of my novels were published. And I told her that I had written a novel and that she was uh, pretty much the female lead, the inspiration for the female lead. Well, she walked four steps away from me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) As fast as you can imagine. I think she thought that I was a stalker. Oh, and that I had been somehow obsessed with her. And I I really wasn't, not at all. I was obsessed with the story of uh, that, you know, uh, her and what she did mean to me, and I I built a storyline around that relationship Mm. using David Grossman and his fictionalized uh, Andrea Cooper. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I guess she won't be coming to the, you know, the movie premiere. I, I guess not. I have, uh, you know, I, I hope Steven Spielberg picks this up. Uh, he should. 
I, I want to play uh, one of the. I want to play one of the people in the. Uh, one of the dads, I think. You know, maybe. Uh, maybe you know, maybe you will. I, can I? I don't, my publisher's probably going to be really angry about this. Yeah. Um, because he doesn't like when I when I say something about my work that isn't actually written stone. But since I started, I'm going to go through with it. Sure. Um, I have tentative plans to actually interview Nancy Spielberg. Wow. Uh, for Stay Thirsty magazine. Okay. Um, and it's probably it's slated to happen in January or February. Um, now, being in my position, you, I'm sure, can imagine where my fantasies went with it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so when I said that I think, I'm hoping that Spielberg picks it up, <laughs> I don't say that I have one foot in the door, or if I do, I have it only in um, one imaginative foot in, in an imagined door. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can hear now. Stephen will love this book. <laughs> yeah, right, as they say, from uh, her mouth to God's ears. Why not? Uh, so it sounds great. Uh, believe it or not, we're in our final five minutes here on Coach's Corner. Actually, three minutes. Wow, time has flown. Boy, it really was a fast hour, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a fast hour. So now is a good time. Uh, to, is there anything else you want to add that I haven't asked you? Um, and also uh, to let people know exactly how they can catch a copy of your books. Uh, well, thank you for that, uh, Andrew. Uh, the easiest uh, you know, way to, to buy the books is very simply just go to Amazon.com and just write in my name, Stephen J. Griffel, and all you know, three novels will pop up. People are always asking me in what order they should read them. And I'm always suggesting that even though Grandview was the one that was published most recently, um, it is, chronologically speaking, the beginning of the David Grossman story. Yes. So I do suggest to readers that they begin with Grandview and then move on to 40 years later and then to the deadline. Okay. That, well, that, I'm definitely on that track as I have already read grand view and i'm i'm definitely like to to know mr grossman as a as an adult now yeah he's still up to a lot of hijinks no surprise there i suppose okay that sounds good and i i do have a link in the show page so anybody who has come through blog talk radio will will see in the introduction a link to the amazon page it has has you there well thank you for that i appreciate it you're, you're very welcome. So I just want to say it's been uh, really great to have you on Coach's Corner on my 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 first show in a year. Honored. Thank you. So, uh, uh, so once again, thank you for being on my show. I want to thank anyone who is listening live today, which is uh, uh, July 15th of – is it the 15th or the 14th? 15th, I think. Okay, July 15th, 2014. And um, uh, if you're not listening on that date, you're listening on a podcast. Thanks for downloading. And we'll be back soon here on Coach's Corner. You can find that about me, Andrew Poritz, at myfuturecoach.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Coach Andrew. And if you'd like to hear me sing, you can find me on Vimeo, V-I-M-E-O.com, at Coach Andrew. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon. Good night.